0: Kia Ran, ni hao and hello. Welcome to the Chewy Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. My guest today is Nick Li. He's a university instructor of sociology and humanities and co-host of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. In today's show, we talk about the revolution, ideology, cyber anarchism, and network state. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. Would you mind uh, working me through your career and uh, what do you do now?
1: Uh, I like to think that I have sort of a unique background, but the more I get involved uh, in conversations like this, the more I learn that so many people have so many amazing backgrounds, just a variety of experience. But I actually have a background in business finance. That was my first college degree. And then I got involved in the tech field for many years. So I worked for corporations, corporate IT. Um, And while I was doing that, I got another undergraduate degree in psychology. I've always been sort of fascinated with human behavior. And toward the end of that degree, I started realizing that I was really passionate about how social forces impact the way that people behave. So I did my master's work in sociology and started teaching uh, right out of grad school, which I absolutely just fell in love with. Uh, And then during that time, I got involved in the tech startup world. And so I was a part of a few companies and founded a couple companies Um, A lot of failures and some with, you know, varying degrees of success as it goes. And so, yeah, I've been, uh, you know, finance and psychology and sociology and I've been a teacher and I've been, you know, in the IT world and IT manager for many years. So kind of a weird sort of journey that I've been on.
0: And now you are co-hosting a podcast, Revolution and Ideology.
1: Correct. Yeah, me and my co-host, we actually teach together at the university where I teach. It's kind of interesting. Many of our students came to us and suggested that we make a documentary film. Yes. They said, you know, the way you guys talk about things is unique. It's different than anything I've ever heard. You should make a film about like what you guys talk about. And so we went down that path and then realized making a documentary film is actually incredibly complicated Mm -hmm. and can be expensive. So we (laughs) kind of took a step back and said... You know, what's the easiest and quickest and cheapest way that we could put our content out to bigger crowds? And, you know, a podcast was really, really easy. I actually had all the equipment from other things and stuff like that. So we just started publishing episodes and we've loved it. And we actually just recorded our 100th episode.
0: Oh, wow. So what motivates you to create the podcast? I mean, how do you find your topic?
1: It goes back and forth. Sometimes we really curate content on what we think our audience wants to hear. And sometimes we just talk about whatever is on our minds at the time. So usually, I mean, we always told ourselves that we would only be doing this if it was making us happy. So we usually just talk about what's on our mind, you know, what's going on in the world, the philosophy and history, etc. that we're studying at the time based on our research and things like that.
0: I see. I know it's a very wide terminology for sociology. So what subcategory did you study and most interest in?
1: I really am focused most with social theory. And then secondarily, most of my expertise is in political sociology. uh, And I tend to focus on social movement and revolution, really how social theory and human behavior relate to social change on a macro level. Uh, So like as an example, I teach a class with my uh, friend Jared, the co-host of Revolution and Ideology, Mm -hmm. called Resistance and Revolution. And it's a historical and theoretical look at social change sort of throughout the years. Uh, So that's really what I'm interested in and focused on.
0: Do you have any examples to define the successful revolutions? I was born in China and I learned the whole thousands years history and there are so many revolutions Mm -hmm. but uh, i I don't know how to judge if this is a good revolution or a bad one what's the criteria
1: our students ask us this all the time right like what is an example of a successful revolution and the answer is it really depends on how you define it and like what time scale you're willing to look at Uh, we say just kind of, you know, common notions that there has been no successful revolution. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at the end result of anything that we call a revolution, most of the societies end up looking very similar to what they looked like before the so-called revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, The one that we usually say that, like, will concede is actually a revolution is sort of the archetypical revolution that everyone uses, which is the French Revolution. Uh, Very clearly, they, in a very short period of time, Change their complete society and their identity of how they really viewed themselves from being, you know, a feudal farmer to then, you know, being French and etc. Now we would argue also that like nationalism came out of that sort of exercise as well, which, uh, you know, may or may not be a good thing. But so it's not all good. But I would say if we're going to pick one, probably France has at least the biggest claim to being a successful revolution.
0: I say yeah there is no like checkbox to take to say yeah that's a good one that's a bad one but you will look at the like long term impact.
1: Right. Yeah even the American Revolution which most people in our classes at least cuz we teach in the United States obviously uh, say that's definitely a successful revolution but if we look at it over a long enough time frame we clearly see that there's still oppression in the United States and also if you look at it even on a very short time frame the lives of the average, let's say, farmer in the colonies at the time changed very, very little as a result of the revolution. So we create sort of this myth and this narrative about the revolution and what we think that it was. But if you lived at the time and you were just a farmer living in Massachusetts or something, life changed very, very little for you, right? You paid your taxes to someone different, but the taxes were the same, if not higher in many cases. So It's just an interesting take to think about, you know, for the average person in any given society, how much of their identity and their day-to-day life, you know, actually change as a result of a revolution. And more often than not, we discover that, you know, it's usually not a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. I come across your work from biologist1929.com and you mentioned the a couple of episodes to respond to his network state and network uni and you mentioned the cyber anarchism
1: yeah so this is something i've been interested in lately as a result of my background in like kind of different spheres is how emerging technology could be used to really challenge the status quo and really folk i got into like i think you know, many people are now into uh, cryptocurrency and things like that, blockchain technology. Uh, and it just lately has been occurring to me how, you know, beyond just being a cryptocurrency, this could be used to in very specific ways that might challenge the dominance of the state, what I like to call the legacy state, because I think it's probably on its way out Um So, yeah, I've been thinking in the terms of how can we use technology in ways that challenge the dominance of states? Because I think that we live in a time right now and have for the past hundred or so years, maybe 200 years, where the most dominant institution that controls the vast majority of how we behave and how we think is the nation state. It really has proliferated, you know, at this point, every corner of the globe were not that long ago that were, you know, vast swathes of the globe that weren't dominated by any nation. Uh, But now through enclosure globally over the past two centuries was really the beginning, but now it's really uh, ramped up over the past two. There's nowhere really left on the world where that isn't at least under the jurisdiction of some state. Uh, And so there's really interesting work studying how that has happened uh, there's an anthropologist, an anarchist anthropologist by the name of James Skeet, James C. Scott, and he has a couple of interesting books in this. Uh, one of them is The Art of Not Being Governed, where he analyzes the step in China. So the relationship between Mongolia and China, and how the Mongolians who have traditionally lived, obviously a nomadic lifestyle outside of the purview of the state, are dealing with China. Uh, beginning to encroach on their lifestyle, etc. And so he has a bunch of different stories in that book from an anthropo- anthropological perspective of, you know, we often think that people throughout history voluntarily uh, sort of began to live under states for protection and so forth. Mm-hmm. But he claims that there are many, many examples throughout history where that's just not true, where people, you know, adamantly resisted becoming uh, under the purview of a nation state and like that that is really the history that we should be studying uh, because it challenges the narrative that you know states are good and the social contract and we all agree and so forth. That there are many people that don't agree at all, that uh, what nothing to do with being members of a nation state.
0: I see. Yeah, you mentioned the Mongolians as an example. It's very interesting because mm-hmm. when I studied the Chinese history, we can see the merge between the Han ethnic group and the Mongols.
1: Completely. Yep.
0: Based on my study, I can see the Han ethnic group heavily impact their lifestyle. A lot of Mongols, they choose to become the residents. They settle down. They're not doing their nomad lifestyle anymore. I mean, is that the preference for people? Not not, uh, walking around this kind of lifestyle?
1: Is it sort of natural that people want a sedentary lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, I guess we would have to ask the people that are you know, actively resisting that lifestyle, they would say no. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to think of that for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings lived across the globe in nomadic lifestyles, that it's only very, very recently, relatively on like a human historical scale that we begin to live sedentary lifestyles. Now, some people argue, well, that's a huge benefit to us Mm -hmm. as human beings because we have time to, I mean, a, we can survive more easily and life, life expectancy, uh, lifespans increase, and we have time for art and music and culture, etc. But on the other side of the coin, many people say, you know, it's terrible for our physical health. And I mean, even our mental health and our our social relationships and so forth. That we are much healthier when we were in smaller communities that were at least somewhat nomadic, uh, if not you know horticultural and pastoral, who still moved a little bit without being completely sedentary. So it really depends on, I think, how you value you know, large cities, large settlements and a sedentary life, which unfortunately many people now, the vast majority of global citizens value their sedentary life because that's what they're used to, right? They just want to travel and move around uh, in little bite-sized pieces on an airplane.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you define the state? Because uh, the concept of country and state is only like 400 years. Yep. It's not that long. Right. Yeah. If you look at the human history. Mm-hmm. Is there a definition for state?
1: Yep, for sure. The most widely used definition comes from actually someone that is uh, really, really used heavily in sociology. He's a political and economic uh, theorist by the name of Max Weber, who lived toward the ends of the 19th and early 20th century. And so he says a state, and I have it here just so I could read word for word. He says, quote, a state is a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. Note that territory is one of the characteristics of the state. Specifically at the present time, the right to use physical force is ascribed to other institutions or to individuals, only to the extent to which the state permits it. The state is considered the sole source of the right to use violence. Hence, politics for us means striving to share power or striving to influence the distribution of power, either among states or among groups within a state, End quote. So for Weber, and this is, like I said, most people agree on this, the state is the organization within any given physical territory that has a monopoly on the use of violence within that territory. And I think that once people adopt that definition of the state, the conversations about the state and nations and so forth really take a different you know, lens. So people that would say, well, the state protects me, absolutely that's true, but also understand that they have the right over you to use violence at any given time. So with that protection also comes a certain level of oppression. Mm-hmm. Now, some people are willing to uh, cede that right and deal with that amount of oppression in exchange for protection from outside forces, et cetera. And some people are not. And so they uh, very clearly would resist being controlled by the state. But I think the conversation centering on the use of violence really lends itself to interesting and productive conversations about the dominant dominance of the state that sort of gets us outside of the philosophies of like Hobbes and Rousseau and Locke, it provides a different angle with which to think about the state much beyond you know, social contracts and Leviathan and so forth, uh, really thinking about this one singular violence. Now, as a result of that, it's not perfect, right? Everything isn't about violence. But when we speak about the state in this way, uh, it leads to really interesting outcomes, I think.
0: Do you think each state must have an ideology to form the peoples together?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, I personally believe this. There are many people that would not. But I think every nation state has its own ideology, that is largely a result of, you know, sort of its historical narrative, which is never completely true, right? Every history of every country is somewhat mythological, uh, to varying, you know, extents. Some countries might be, uh, you know, the majority mythological, and some countries might not, but. Regardless, every single country has a mythological narrative. It's a term we use. This comes from a political scientist by the name of Rogers M. Smith that's called ethically constitutive story. Mm -hmm. And every political entity has an ethically constitutive story that tells you what is right and wrong and what the norms are, what is acceptable behavior in a society. So, you know, like as an example, in the United States it's part of the, the Constitution and the story of the American Revolution. And like all of these things throughout time make up the history of this country. And every country has an ethically constitutive story that informs the ideology of the people that live within its physical uh, territory. Mm-hmm. So it informs the way that they think and behave. Now, it could be fully totalitarian where the citizens of a country only think within the national ideology and really have no thoughts of their own or any, you know, sort of thinking outside of the box. Or it could be, uh, you know, less intense where some people internalize some parts of the national ideology and don't internalize others. And there's more, you know, promotion of free thought and challenging of the status quo and so forth. Though I would argue as uh, time goes on, really the space for free thinking is being more and more limited in every country in the world not just the totalitarian regimes that are cliche at this point. So, you know, even the United States, despite what many people would argue, uh, you know, being the bastion of free thought and freedom of press and so forth, uh, we cannot deny the ways in which the ways that we think and behave are limited and controlled by the state. Now, I wouldn't argue that it's fully authoritarian and, you know, that there are secret uh, working camps throughout the country and like etc right we're not at that level but we cannot deny that the state is in various ways controlling the way that we think and behave um that's just a fact and so we can either start having conversations about that but the dangerous thing is denying that altogether i think that's where we really run into problems
0: can i say if uh, large enough people they have the same ideology and they can claim they can create a country
1: it's possible. And this is where the philosophy of an Italian uh, Marxist philosopher by the name of Antonio Gramsci comes into play, who I've done a lot of research on. Yeah. He's really, really in- interesting because he bridges the gap between Marxism as a purely materialist ideology focused on essentially economy and the material world and other more idealist ideologies. He kind of merges the two and he talks about this concept of hegemony and culture wars. Mm -hmm. And he says exactly that, that there's really this battle at all times for the dominant ideology and that everyone is partaking in this battle uh, all the time. So when we are watching commercials and television programs and reading books and et cetera, everything that we do that we are being indoctrinated with different ideologies and that we also are indoctrinating other people with ideologies uh, at any given time, even if we're not intentionally doing so. And so he says, whichever you know sector of society, the most people, it's not always the numeric majority, but in simple terms, the group that can get the most people to think in the ways that they think Uh, will achieve hegemony over that society and it will be their ideology that is the dominant ideology. Now, of course, there are very many other factors like, you know, who controls the military as one example and so forth, who controls the uh, media machine and like so forth. But uh, that's really Gramsci's contribution to thinking about in that way is how does ideology, how could it possibly contribute to culture and this concept of culture wars and, you know, sort of winning the dominant way of thinking and really getting to inform that.
0: I see. It reminds me about the cultural revolution conducted by oh, Mao Zedong. Exactly. Yeah. It's a 10 years which killed a lot of intelligent people and uh, propaganda, the communist mm-hmm. ideologies.
1: And that's one of the biggest critiques of sort of Gramsci's theories is that exact thing, right? Like mm-hmm. who is responsible for the propaganda machines and do they have everyone's best interests at heart? And yeah why why should we believe you know what people are telling us you know how do we actually think on our own and think outside of ideology is that even possible and so forth so one of the critiques of Gramsci's sort of concept is exactly that that it creates the framework for bad things to happen right propaganda totalitarian propaganda
0: how do you suggest that people can avoid culture revolution happened again
1: uh this is complicated because there's no real simple answer Because many people have many different opinions on this. Some people suggest that it's impossible to think outside of ideology, that just an inherent part of our consciousness as as human beings is viewing the world through some type of ideology, some perspective. We have to have some lens, some framework Mm -hmm. with which to, through which, I suppose, to digest the reality all around us. So for them, there's no escaping ideology uh, whatsoever. Mm. For other thinkers, uh, like Fukuyama is an example, he claims that we are at the end of ideology, that we have surpassed ideology and that we no longer are susceptible to propaganda because now we have achieved a level of understanding where we can identify ideology and identify propaganda and so that we can see past that and really uh, think on our own. Um, I don't know that I agree fully with either of those two perspectives, Mm -hmm. but I think in a really simple terms that like the average person can do to sort of protect themselves from propaganda is really developing critical thinking skills. I mean, that's really the simplest thing that we can do. And unfortunately that's not taught a lot anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely through like, you know, in the levels below university and even less so as time goes on in at the university level. Um, But I think people would be well-served to just on their own, you know, learn about critical thinking and what it means and how it functions to hold an idea in your head without fully adopting it and really be able to, you know, turn that idea over in your head and think about its merits and its critiques and so forth. I think we've really gotten to a place that's very dangerous in Western society where we are incapable of doing that, where we've just fully adopted whatever our way of thinking is and we're really, really closed-minded and so the, no matter someone that disagree what they're saying, someone that disagrees with us, we aren't actually listening to them. We are just thinking about how they're wrong and thinking about how we're right throughout the course of conversation mm-hmm. instead of realizing that you know we can hear what they're saying, we can hold their viewpoint in our heads and there's really no danger to doing that. you know what I mean The danger is that you might become more open-minded that's the real danger, but we should all be welcoming that. That possibility,
0: I think. Yeah, it's very interesting because when I was in China, I read a lot of history written by mm-hmm. the government, and I know I'm—I don't know yep. how did I realize I was brainwashed by the government. Then when I moved to New Zealand, I heavily read a lot of historic books written by Westerners, mm-hmm. and I also found that it's like uh, go another extreme. It's
1: not that true. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the, the answer that we all need to realize is essentially that when it comes to history, at least, right, like mathematics or something might be different, but when it comes to history, at least there is no truth, right? There are extremes and the truth lies somewhere in the middle of those two extremes, because the two extremes, their history is written with very, very specific agendas in mind, right? And so we have to sort of take bits and pieces from the two extremes and put together like some manifestation of truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is no real truth. Uh, It's just impossible to create real historical truth other than uh, I love film director Werner Herzog. And he says the only real truth is sort of the accountant's truth is what he calls it where like this event happened on this date. That is real. (laughs) Anything beyond that is a complete fabrication and is a story that we can't possibly know. Right. So you know, this ship landed on these shores on this date. That is true. But what those people felt and what they believed and how that impacted, you know, the natives of that physical territory and so forth, right? That's all story that we can only do our best guess at putting together. And so he says, we either have the accountant's truth or we have stories. And we need to recognize that the the history we're reading is our stories and it's mythological to some extent and it always will be.
0: So how many ideologies or isms exist in in our world.
1: Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Many I mean most people would probably argue that there are infinite ideologies, mm-hmm. right? Any nuanced combination of any way of behaving and thinking, but I think that we could probably say that there are you know a handful or maybe a dozen of really dominant ones, that dominate our way of thinking. And I teach a class called Ideology and Isms with the co-host of the Revolution and Ideology podcast, Jared. And so we go through, you know, what we believe are the main ones that dominate us, at least in the Western world. And it's things like, you know, capitalism and patriarchy and, you know, these types of things that really, really inform how we think about the world. In the United States specifically, right, individualism and, and so on. So there's probably a dozen or so dominant ones, maybe half a dozen. But, I mean, in all all together, there's probably infinite ones as, you know, to go back to Garamchi for a second, as the culture war is playing out, you know, all of these ideologies combine into be, you know, an infinite combination. And everyone believes uh, to one extent or another in different ones.
0: Mm-hmm. For normal people, is there an escape from the ideology? We are all conditioned by the ideology. Can you see that?
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> So there are some interesting uh, there's some interesting work throughout the years in this field. Many people suggest that one potential escape is drug use, right? Like psychedelics, <laughs> etc. Yes. So maybe you know by doing shrooms or LSD, we can escape ideology, even if temporarily, to see the world as it might really be, or at least to experience our being, you know, outside of ideology. There are others that suggest, you know, meditation as an example Mm -hmm. in sort of the Zen and the Buddhist traditions and others that we can meditate and in a meditative state or even perhaps achieving enlightenment, we will be beyond ideology. And then, like I said, there are others who say that, no, we absolutely can't escape ideology ever. That Mm -hmm. it's not possible. Um, I kind of fall on the side of it's not truly possible to ever escape ideology, mainly because the way that humans interpret the natural world is always through the lens of anthropocentrism, centering human beings at the center of our experience. We really cannot escape that uh, no matter how much we try. We always are clearly are human beings. And as a result, we tend to prioritize our experience as a human uh, above and beyond any other, you know, natural being, whether it's a plant or an animal or something like that. So I would say that it's impossible to escape at the very least that lens. But the best we can do is learn critical thinking skills and you know maybe meditate if you're into it, maybe uh, try psychedelics if you're into it. If you really are you know seeking that escape, then maybe you're willing to go far enough down that path. Uh, but that obviously is all a personal choice. But we can all at least uh, explore critical thinking skills for sure.
0: You mentioned anarchism quite often in your podcast. so can you give me a definition because there are so many misunderstandings. Regarding this term, yes. people will say, oh, they are just a crazy protesters against the government. Yes, yeah.
1: yes. And I think that's a key point that you just mentioned to start off with, is the the difference between anarchism as a philosophy and anarchism in real world practice, mm-hmm. right? So people would say like, well, you know, anarchism is just completely wrong. And I don't agree with it because I was at a protest and I saw someone from Antifa Throw a bick through a building. Well, okay, but that's fine. But we can't use real-world implementations who very clearly, you know, are being implemented by human beings who are imperfect, who may or may not be anarchists, right? We have no idea in real life. We can't judge the philosophy and the theory based on its real-world implementations. Always, right? We have to be, like I said, be able to entertain these ideas separately from the way that they've been implemented. In history and perhaps in the present. So we have to be able to think of the root and the origins of anarchist philosophy and what it looks like now and like, you know, modern anarchist thinkers and etc. And whether we agree with their ideas, instead of just ruling it out completely, because we don't like what Antifa is doing as an example, or we don't agree with this commune that we saw on the news at one point, or whatever it might be, right? I mean, anarchism, in a nutshell, very, very basically, is the abolishment of involuntary hierarchy, if I can really put it as simple as absolutely possible, right? The abolishment of involuntary oppression. And when you put it in terms like that, it becomes really, really hard for people to disagree with. Now I won't say that there aren't people who disagree with that. There there are. You know, some people group think that we should have, you know, involuntary oppression and so forth. But really that's the nuts and bolts, the really motivation and inspiration for all anarchists. Is the abolishing of involuntary hierarchy and oppression, um, and then from there we get into you know more nuanced you know anarcho syndicalism and individualist anarchists and anarcho communists and you know etc. There are many many different yeah. uh, theoretical nuances within anarchist philosophy, but they all agree mm-hmm. at least on that one uh, very minor. Uh, simple definition, which is just the abolishment of involuntary hierarchy. And as a result, relating this back to states, anarchists disagree with the existence of states. So they are for the abolishment, the dismantling of states, because very clearly uh, states, if if we're using the definition of the monopoly on violence, very clearly states then uh, are involuntary uh, hierarchies, if they are maintaining uh, their use of violence over us in that capacity.
0: Do you think anarchism will contribute to build the network state or network uni with the technology?
1: I don't see how it won't. Um, And I know that Balaji Srinivasan, that's whose ideas we're talking about here in case anyone didn't know, he works really, really hard, and I appreciate this, to sort of merge the right and left discourse. So he's not talking specifically in the words of the right libertarians Mm -hmm. or in the words of the leftist anarchists or socialists. But he very carefully, and I've heard him say these words in interviews, right, that we need to sort of get past the right-left sort of paradigm and understand that there are both good and bad parts of both ideologies. And, you know, so maybe the idea, he said this, right, a union from the left where workers get together and have collective bargaining power, that's not so bad. And hey, maybe people on the right, you should understand that there's power there right, that we can have power over our employees and over states and so forth, if we can join together. And hey, maybe people on the left, maybe there is something to be said for sort of this idea of the sovereign individual, individual rights and individual freedoms, Mm -hmm. etc, right? Maybe we shouldn't be driven by the communal interest, that if we focus on individual interests, that that will result in a stronger community, and that we will all be better for it, and so forth. So he's really trying to transcend, I think, right-left, which I think is important. But saying all that to say, the very clearly anarchism is going to play a role there uh, for sure, as will socialism, as will you know individualism, as will you know right wing ideologies if we 're going to have conversations about dismantling what I believe to be the most dominant social structure that exists right now, which is the nation state we 're going to have to be willing to really entertain and accept ideas all across the political spectrum if we 're going to achieve something that is that you know large on that large of uh, a scale we really I mean everything needs to be uh, put on the table and we need to be able to consider and entertain all of the different means and ways of thinking and ideas if we're going to have any success at all I believe
0: yeah do you have a time frame for we achieving the network <laughs> union network state
1: um I there are so many uh, variables mm-hmm. that can't be controlled by any individual or even group of people Um, So I think it's going to have to be a really complex combination of things that, unfortunately, in my opinion, you know, I'm not as optimistic as I think Bollard is. I think that any time we've seen social change at a drastic scale, that it tends to get worse than before it gets better. Um, So I think that something like, you know, economic destabilization, political destabilization, you know, climate crisis, like all of those things, I mean, any of those things or all of those things, worst case at the same time, uh, are going to force us to rethink the mm-hmm. way that we have viewed the world, to drastically create a paradigm shift in our ideologies and realize that the way that we have been thinking in the past, whether it's the you know promotion of the network state or the promotion of capitalism as an economic and political system or right any of the status quos that we have right now, it's going to force us to realize that. Those are not performing as we need them to perform in whatever the new society looks like. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to leave those by the wayside and somehow drastically modify the way that we are functioning, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we view the world. So a timeframe on that, I don't know. Honestly, Mm -hmm. it could be in a year. It could be a hundred years. I will say, I think that we get into this really interesting moral debate where if it happens really, really rapidly, it could result in the sort of very short-term loss of life. If it happens really, really gradually, well, then it could result in sort of perhaps the same amount of loss of life but spread out over a longer period. But I personally don't believe that it's going to happen without things getting much, much worse, which unfortunately means that many people are going to lose their lives across the globe uh, throughout the process. And my main concern is the fact that If we look at global inequality, if we look at inequality on a global scale, it's going to be those uh, sort of in the global south that I think are going to be the victims of these occurrences. Right. So when climate disaster happens, uh, it's going to be those individuals that are going to be impacted the most and so forth. You know, when capitalism crashes, we would like to say that uh, people in the West, it will suffer the most because they're the most capitalistic. But unfortunately, with, you know, the outsourcing uh, and the mo- offshoring of labor and production to support the capitalist lifestyle in the West uh, very clearly it's going to be felt on a global scale. Uh, no one will escape uh, if capitalism starts to uh, collapse. So I know that's pessimistic, um, but I don't see how things get better without them getting at least somewhat worse but we could be very close to that. Maybe it doesn't have to get that much worse, right? Maybe what we're seeing is the very beginnings of people starting to question the status quo, and that it only has to get a little bit worse for sort of the scale to uh, tilt in the opposite direction and for a revolution to happen. Mm. Maybe that's possible, right? And in the scholarship of social change and revolution, right, there are all these charts of how unhappy people are. It's a uh, you know relative deprivation is the term, and they're willing to accept. Uh, you know, some amount of unhappiness before they uh, revolt. And that might be a lot, it might be a little, depending on whatever the social milieu, economic, political, et cetera, uh, is at the time. But that at some point, there will be a point when they are no longer willing to accept their unhappiness, their unfulfillment, and so forth, politically and economically. And from there, the change happens very, very quickly. So these graphs look like flat lines and then immediate, you know, exponential increase As once that point gets hit, then change happens very, very quickly. So it's possible that we are right on the cusp of that change, or it's possible that things have to get much, 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 unfortunately worse before we see that happen. Or it's also possible the third option is, you know, we live in times that have never existed throughout human history, right? Our economic system, our political systems, all the nuances that exist right now uh, across the globe have very clearly never existed Uh, ever in human history. The technologies that exist, I mean, just you and I being able to converse in different countries live is just like astonishing if we just go back, you know, 40 years, not even no one had even really thought of something like this being feasible. And so it's also possible, and I tend to believe a little bit of this, that history doesn't actually teach us a lot about what the social change of modern times is going to look like because the social change that has happened throughout history has very clearly existed in a completely different social and economic milieu. The context and the circumstances were very clearly completely different. So we have no idea what is, it's going to take to change the world right now. And when people ask me, like, you know, well, how do we revolt right now? I don't have an answer for that. And I think we should be wary of anyone that claims to have an answer yeah. for that, because we have no idea. We can, I can give a best guess, and they can guess, right, uh, being scholars in the field or whatever, But only the people, only after the change has happened, can we retrospectively look back and say, ah, this is how social, this is what we should have been doing that time, right, to facilitate social change. Now we see the interworkings of what was going on. But that's only in retrospect, right? It'll be the historians that can answer that 20 years after the change, right? Um, So, yeah, I don't have the answer and I don't know if it's going to, you know, be bad or good or what. I don't know those things, and I think anyone that claims to know those things, you know, is just guessing, and that's fine. We should be guessing. We should be philosophizing about how to interpret the world, but we can't take that as truth. That's when things get really dangerous.
0: True, and you mentioned the technology and the ideology debt in your mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, yep. can you please explain that?
1: Yeah, so I think everyone that exists in the tech world is probably familiar with technological debt, and it's this idea that you know, technology over time accrues this quote unquote debt, which is in the form of like bad code or, uh, you know, missing documentation or, you know, something like that. And so really it comes from this idea of trying to deliver products as quickly as possible. um, And at As a result of that, you inevitably have to sacrifice doing things 100% correctly, right? You make it work as good as you can, and then you move on because you're under time constraints. Then you inherit that technology, and you're forced to either deal with that technological debt, go back and uh, correct it, or just let it ride right, for the future, or perhaps completely start over. And so I think we really need to be cognizant relating this to the network state and their network union, how all the technology that exists today is really used, because I think that technology... That has been developed underneath this advanced industrial society, either from the get go has been developed to Mm. solidify the dominance of the nation state or very quickly has been co-opted by the nation state and used to perpetuate its dominance. Because the vast majority of economic incentives that exist uh, really were incentivizing technology that Mm. performs those functions. So I think, and just one example is like Facebook, right? Um, how nowadays that Facebook has really proliferated every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, governments across the globe are really taking an interest in how Facebook is functioning and what they are allowing their users to post and discuss and so forth. More and more, as time goes on, the government is taking an interest in those things, and Zuckerberg is testifying in front of Congress, and uh, Facebook is, you know, has different uh, versions in China and the United States, and so forth. In fact, I think it's banned in China now altogether. Uh, So that's a whole other thing, right? And so forth. So, uh, I mean, another example is the internet, and as part of my research, I've read back through, like, the listservs when the internet was first coming about, and this is really where the term cyber anarchism has come from, that I've sort of adopted is... That the vast majority of those people in the early days were anti-establishment, uh, really anti-status quo, anti-state. The majority of them, mm-hmm. and they really talked a lot about, uh, you know, perhaps naively how the internet was going to change the world, how it was really going to empower the individual, and was going to enable them to both politically and economically challenge the status quo, and perhaps lead mm-hmm. to the dismantling of nation states and you know political systems across the world, and like. Obviously, I would be remiss to say that that didn't happen to some extent, but overwhelmingly, the internet very, very quickly got shifted into uh, chasing the profit motive, and so the technologies that were invented to exist on the internet as a layer really are driven by profit, not driven by empowering individuals, not driven by challenging the status quo, right? Not not uh, incentivized and functioning to uh, take down political regimes and so forth. Now, of course, it has been used to varying Uh, capacities to do those things but that's Mm -hmm. not the vast majority of how it's used right and in fact we've seen Facebook going back to Facebook I don't know why I'll pick on to harp on them but you know if social change is happening in a specific part of the globe they very quickly uh, censor any posts surrounding that change etc we've seen this in Hong Kong we've seen it in uh, Myanmar we've seen it as examples uh, throughout the globe Um, and so I say all that to say that I think we're a bit naive if we can if we're just going to say that, well, we can use existing technology and we can use that as it exists to challenge the state. I think before that happens, we are going to have to do a lot of work to really wrangle that technology out of the hands of the state, the government, and really the profit seekers. Because there's, I don't see any way where we can seek profit, have governments control the technology, and use that technology to challenge the status quo. That just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. So we need to both invent new technologies probably without profit-seeking motives that the state cannot control, which is why uh, cryptology and blockchain technology and so forth is so appealing because it is those things. And we need, we need to incentivize that type of technological development. Yeah. And we need to begin the really hard work of removing existing technologies from the control of the state and from the control of those that are using it solely for the function of seeking profit. Now, this is where my pessimism comes in, is that that process, I believe, is not going to happen without violence. I don't think that we regain the control of existing technologies from the government, from the military, as an example, from the police, as an example, from the profit seekers, as an example, without violence. I just don't really see how that can be possible. Um, And this is where I differ from many of the people that exist in the technological space, especially as long as governments have control over the infrastructure. That's a really, really important thing. So if a government can turn off the Internet at the flip of a switch, then it becomes really, really hard to organize and to use technology that requires the Internet to challenge the status quo. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that every single country that has uh, widely adopted the Internet doesn't have that control. They do. And even if we live in the United States, right, people are like, oh, the United States would never do that. I promise you that the United States government has this control and that it would very, very easily can turn off the switch. Now, of course, there are interesting technologies that individuals can use and the internet would come back in some capacity fairly quickly, right? And we've seen this uh, across the globe when governments facing revolution have turned off their internet. Uh, People's internet comes back fairly quickly, but it's not as robust clearly as the infrastructure that uh, already exists that the big telecom companies are uh, using to operate. And we have to be careful that it's not turned off long enough to completely um, defeat any challenge that the status quo uh, that may have been uh, building. So yeah, really complicated uh, Mm -hmm. relationships that we're dealing with here.
0: Yeah, I see. Because you know, a lot of um, Western technology company has been banned in China, like Facebook, Mm -hmm. Google, and Twitter, and Chinese government also launched their own digital currency.
1: And Mm -hmm. they probably
0: built up their own blockchain technology. Yes.
1: That's actually an interesting news that's I mean, yeah. it's going on right now, how China as a, the Chinese government is dealing with blockchain technology and Bitcoin, etc. I mean, we're seeing this play out live, essentially, of how the Chinese government is going to uh, deal with these sort of things. And I think that we're a little naive in, mm-hmm. let's say, the United States, if we think there might not be a time when the U.S. government starts cracking down in similar ways, if people start using the blockchain to challenge the legitimacy of the United States government. Uh, very, very easily, uh, we can see that happening in the United States.
0: Maybe in the future, China will be a single nation because they create their own rules and uh, ideologies and the rest of the world play the same game. Would that be possible?
1: It's possible. It would require a lot, a lot of economic realignment, I think. Mm -hmm. Clearly, every country would have to rely on no one but themselves in order to generate enough products for their citizens to survive, right? So United States buying goods from China clearly would be off the table and vice versa. So it would require a lot of readjustment, but it's not impossible. I would say that I don't see it happening only because of the drastic shifts that would be required. But as long as we're seeking profit, the United States will continue to want to sell its goods to other countries, as an example, and China will as well and so forth, right? So we would have to be willing to give up all of that That economic opportunity to fully insulate ourselves economically, it's not impossible, but I think it's probably very, very unlikely, at least, unless we're sort of forced to do that for some reason, nuclear fallout or climate disaster or something, like worst case scenarios, right? Like, I don't know.
0: I'd like to talk about people all think China is a communist country. But based on my experience, I more find out China is more like a capitalism country. What's your thoughts on those combined ideology? China is not the typical communist country like North Korea.
1: And I would argue that, and I tell my students this when we really dissect socialism and communism and anarchism, etc., that there is not a single country that does now or has ever existed that is communist. If we're really looking back at the traditional like origins of Marxist theory, right? The theory of like Marx and Lenin, etc., Mao... And so forth was really that I guess Marx and Engels less so they use the term socialism and uh, communism interchangeably but once we get to Lenin socialism becomes a very specific jumping off point it's a transition phase between capitalism to socialism and then on to communism and so socialism is you might have heard this term the dictatorship of the proletariat where the proletariat has the political power And they use that to implement policies that are aligned with socialist ideology. Then eventually, over time, the state will, quote unquote, wither away. And once the state withers away, uh, just as one uh, example of what would happen, then we would be in a pure communism in a wholly communist society very clearly there is, like China is not an example, North Korea is not an example, right? The state clearly has not withered away in China. The state very clearly has not withered away in uh, North Korea as an example. And so I think Westerners are quick to label China as communist because all they know is that communism is bad. But they don't know the nuances of communist and socialist theory, where technically uh, China, if we're using original, like, orthodox Marxist and Leninist theory, technically China is still socialist in that regard. And it's not even really what we would call socialist. It's by no means dictatorship of the proletariat, right? It's some very interesting sort of hybrid between, like, socialism and capitalism and so forth, where clearly there is industry, and clearly that industry is not fully controlled by the workers. Clearly a nation-state exists, and clearly that nation-state is not fully controlled by the workers, and so forth. So China is, I think, probably by no definition of the term communist. It's by some definition of the term, some version of socialism, and by some definition of the term, some version of capitalism. It's this really sort of amalgamation of these different ways of thinking. But if we're just going to base our thinking on orthodox Marxism and Leninism, it's not communist at all, right? Even though they may, themselves may uh, use that terminology to self-identify, it's just not. It's just, it can't be defined uh, as communist if we're using the definition that you know the state ceases to exist and so forth there are other requirements but that's the main one right that the state no longer exists in any real capacity
0: so how do you define the ideology of russia
1: ah russia is interesting it was what i i guess we have to say the difference between leninism and stalinism like when lenin was leading the country and when stalin was leading the country drastically differ um, it was more socialist when Lenin was leading the country. However, we have to remember that Lenin was trying to implement all of this in the middle of civil war and global warfare. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, and it's referred to as wartime socialism or wartime communism, where very clearly he wasn't able, for a variety of reasons, to implement all of his theories, right? All of Leninist and Marxist theory in practice because he was dealing with global political and economic circumstances that were largely out of his uh, control. But I would say, and I think most people would agree, that it was sort of more socialist, like more aligned with traditional Marxist thought under Lenin than it was under Stalin. Now, there are people who will like dogmatically defend Stalin and say, you know, he did nothing wrong and it was out of his control and like I'm not one of those people. I think Stalin was an atrocious human being. Um, However, uh, he was by far more totalitarian than Lenin was etc. But that's not to say that even under Stalin's Soviet Union, that it was like fully authoritarian, right? Like, yes, there were gulags and like all of these atrocities Mm -hmm. that we must admit to. But, you know, industrialization was happening really, really quickly. And that's one thing I always point to that, even though it had incredible negative consequences for a lot of the population, you know, Stalin oversaw the industrialization of the Soviet Union basically overnight into a global superpower, uh, which is like, I mean, that's never happened before. Uh, The closest example we could get to is Mao's China, right? And yes, there was famine, but the details of that famine are so much more complicated than most people say, like Stalin caused the famine. Well, it's not like Stalin sat in a room somewhere and was like, okay, guys, this is how we're going to, you know, step one, this, step two, this, step three famine. Like that obviously didn't happen. It was such a complex combination of political and economic factors and global influence uh, in the Soviet Union. Mm. So, yes, Stalin was totalitarian, like I won't ever deny that, but we also have to consider the complexities of the world that he was living in. And so we can't just completely write off uh, Stalin's Soviet Union As totalitarian, there's nothing to be learned from that. I think there's a lot that we can learn from that. And Stalin as an individual, we have to take the good and the bad. Yeah, he was a terrible person. He also had some really interesting ideas mm. that we should probably consider and think through more. And like I said earlier, hold in our minds and be able to turn over and think about and really critique and entertain without, you know, fear that we're going to become a communist or whatever. It's just a mark of an intelligent person as being able to do that. You know what I mean? So there's good and bad uh, for sure, I think.
0: True. The last question, what gets you most excited about the future?
1: I'm really, really excited to see how things play out. I think I might be uh, just young enough, and I feel old these days, but I think I might be just young enough to survive, to see some really, really impressive uh, social change. Now, I'm hoping that's not in the negative, right? I'm hoping that we can find solutions for the impending climate crisis and so forth. But I'm, you know, I'm really hoping that I can see some really positive things, uh, less inequality and so forth. And I Mm -hmm. actually have some faith in the younger generations that they really are thinking differently uh, and so forth. Now, I'm not resting all of my outcomes on that because I think people often fall into the trap of like, well, I'm done here. It's up to the younger generations to like make things happen uh, that historically has not gone well. Um, But I see a lot of unique things coming out of the younger generations right now, thinking about things in ways that, you know, my generation and certainly older generations uh, haven't ever thought of them. Um, As an example, I was on a call the other day where uh, someone was asking a question about how, you know, Generation Z is willing to leave a job after six months if they're not happy and like how the baby boomers, this makes them so mad because they worked for, you know, one career their entire life, you know, and I say, you know what? if you have the means to quit a job after six months because you're not fulfilled, good for you. And you should take advantage of that opportunity. And if someone is like mad at you because they worked their whole lives at one career, like that's, that's completely unfair. Instead what they should be saying is I worked my whole life at one career so that I could bring a world into being where you could quit your job after six months if you weren't fulfilled. Right? So very clearly it's like the time old ideological uh, battles between the old and the new generations But I really, really like there's a a philosopher by the name Mm -hmm. of Guy Debord. He's Italian uh, and his group uh, was called the Situationalists. And he writes how even the generational perspective is a result of Mm -hmm. capitalism, that it's this manufactured divide between the old and the young that keeps us focused on fighting with one another instead of realizing how much we have in common. And that we should actually be joining forces to fight against the status quo and to achieve equality and to really dismantle the power structures. That it's it's all completely manufactured. That if we actually stop to think about the old and the the young, right, the baby boomers and the Gen Z and et cetera, that we would realize that we have so much more in common than we think. That we live currently in the same world, right? We do, uh, like, we must all go to the grocery store. We must, like, we all have to do, like, 99% of our lives are the same we've just had different experiences. And then if we really would break down the barrier between young and old, we would realize that these experiences are valuable and that we can learn from one another. We can really, the, the young can learn from the old and vice versa very clearly. And if we just break down these divisions between young and old, this like just completely fabricated uh, divide that we could actually uh, make real groundwork. And his argument is for dismantling uh, the status quo, uh, the situation were largely anarchist uh, collection. And so they were about dismantling the state and so forth. A lot of interesting ideas came out of their group.
0: Mm. So what do you see your, your role in this upcoming social change?
1: You know, I'm really, I mean, it's why I teach and why we start to keep the podcast going really is like, hopefully I provide some value in talking about the things that I talk about and telling the stories that I tell and really exploring theory that's out there you know, giving people terms and frameworks with which to analyze the world if they see fit um, and so forth, really just being an educator and having conversations that inform people, you know, I hope. And then, you know, my, I mean, that's all me, like, ideally what inspires me, but really the, the, at the bottom line, the best thing I can do is just be a good dad to my daughter. Like, that's all at the end of the day that I can really focus on and hope to see some outcome. And if I do a disservice there, that's really, really, Uh, what will give me pains on my deathbed, but everything else is sort of a positive. It's interesting when, you know, people that are revolutionary, that protest all the time, et cetera, how much they change when they have kids. And that's not to say that they stop going to protest and become anti-revolutionary or whatever, but it very clearly for me, at least immediately, my number one priority became her. Um, And my second priority is creating a world where she can grow up you know, with as much equality and as little oppression and as much opportunity for her as absolutely possible. So it's really those two things that really inspire me uh, and just being day-to-day a dad for her, you know.
0: That's great. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. I learned a lot. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.